Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today is a, a special episode to celebrate the launch of the new Head Talks tour. I actually have uh, the person joining me on the initial part of the Head Talks tour co-hosting today Sophia Rocklin is joining us author of When Plants (laughs) Dream go back and check out her episode if you're unfamiliar and I have with me we are interviewing today he is the Leland and Dorothy Olson chair of political science at the University of Nebraska Lincoln Kevin Smith is joining me thanks for having me on Shane and thanks for doing stand-up science back in what when was that was that uh, that wasn't that long ago? That was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, that was a great show. It was a little. You must get this. Some I, I couldn't have been the only person, but it was a little awkward having a half comedy, half science show, and then people seeing the name Kevin Smith. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you look, if you Google me, I'm truly a Renaissance man. <laughs> I, I direct films. I was a professional football player. There's, there's a lot of stuff that I get up to. Which one is it going to be? Yeah. It actually is one of my... Kevin Smith is a big director, that's one thing, but a lot of times I'm Googling an academic trying to find their stuff, and they do this incredibly important and interesting work, but the first person that comes up is some like person that played minor league baseball for a season 10 years ago. One of the my biggest regrets as, a, as an academic, if I had to go back and do something over again, is, you know, it's a big deal, the name that you publish under, because that's what you're known as forever and ever and ever. And especially if I'd have known way back then, there were going to be search engines where you were punching in names and it was spitting out, you know, like Kevin Smith, the director or Kevin Smith, the football player, I would have given myself a different name to publish under. Have you yeah. thought about what? what yeah, name that would have I would have been Kevin Bigglesworth Smith or, or oh, something. Bigglesworth. Bigglesworth. Yeah. It's not too late. Something it's not like too that. late. I, I think that boat has already sailed for me. <laughs> Kevin Smith, I am, and Kevin Smith, I'll always be. <laughs> and explain a little bit about what you do. It was. It's one of my favorite subjects on the show. We've talked about. We've had guests in the past. I've probably had five different personality researchers in the past, but we've also talked about some of the big five and everything with with some other guests. Listeners always love hearing about this stuff. And you in particular, um, on stand-up science, were kind of presenting a lot of the uh, the political side of uh, what what different personality traits and characteristics and genetic and environmental underpinnings lead to people's political beliefs. Is that... Uh, yeah, sure. So the, you know, the 30 second or five minute or three hour elevator speech that an academic typically gives typically gives about what they do. I study the biology and the psychology of political attitudes and behaviors. So I look at everything from the genetic influence on political attitudes and behaviors, whether you're interested in politics or not interested in politics, whether you're a liberal or a conservative. I study the physiology and the endocrinology of those traits, um, and I also look at um, various psychological, not just traits, but states that um, influence, you know, your how you feel about abortion or gun control or Donald Trump or whatever aspect of the political system we happen to be interested in that week. Mm. So we actually had a fun thing. We uh, since it's Sophia's first time co-hosting this show, we had a you, you had a little kind of survey that you sent us to fill out. I've I've done a big five kind of personality indicator before on the show, and it was a lot of fun. Um, but this was a is this kind of a little more of a political? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, this is. I mean, I want to put a big caveat on this. This is yep. not a super validated psychometric survey, right. but. This is basically kind of like a 20 questions sort of a thing that we put together for a book that we did back in 2014. And the whole idea behind it was to, you know, hopefully show people that your orientation to the world around you and what you're interested in and your attitudes about completely non-political things 
can predict your political attitudes. And so the questions that I gave you, and you'll note none of them say, are you a Republican? Are you a conservative? Um, are you a Democrat? Are you a liberal? Do you like this issue? Do you hate that issue? They're all things about like, you know, would you slap your further? And do you think we should have strong leaders? Those, those sorts of things. These sorts of items have actually been pretty good predictors of people's political orientation. Now, I'm not going to make any bets that I can perfectly predict your either one of your political attitudes with uh, well, unerring accuracy. You, you did, you did, you did last night come to our psychedelic well, yeah, I do science-ish have a, comedy show. I do have a, a little bit of insight from there, yeah. But uh, I, I think I can say with a straight face, especially based on your responses, Sean. <laughs> Shane, yeah. Yeah, you just Shane, sorry. That's you okay. straight face. You know, all the time. This is, Kevin does not have a straight face in any way The record right now. show. You, yes. So, yeah, tell us about ourselves, Kevin. Well, your answers, Shane, are unusual in that every single answer that you gave fit the liberal profile. Yeah, I did. So th- that's unusual in the sense that, you know, most people have at least one or two answers that... Okay, I also just filled this out yesterday, and I also just got back from spending Thanksgiving with my conservative family. <laughs> do, you, do, you think do. Have, no. do you think that might have pushed things? That, yeah, well, depending on the conversations that you had <laughs> over the turkey, you know, politics and uh, where you stand on it might have been forefront of your mind, and, and sh- sure, that, that could have helped. But every single question that you answered would have fallen into the um, you know, the, the, the more typical liberal profile on an in, individual differences sort of sense. There's a listener right now like, I knew it. Knew it. God, this whole time. <laughs> what about Sophia? Is she a dirty hippie as well? Yeah. I'm trying well, to decide. I feel like this is getting the sorting hat on in Harry Potter <laughs> or something. What, what house are you in? There are certain exceptions around what you might call authority and respect. So you said that you couldn't slap your father in the face as part of a comedy skit. And that's sort that of like- is, I mean, I, first off, if I would have known that was your answer to that question, I would have never <laughs> invited like you jerk, on a comedy tour. Well, and, and, I mean, I'm pro-comedy, not pro-slapping your father. Well, and that's indicative of someone who doesn't want to sort of like cross certain boundaries with with authority figures and and dis, and disrespect them um and you also said you um you don't leave a mess in your apartment or house when you go to work in the morning and having an ordered social environment is something that is more indicative of a conservative trait than a liberal trait. Mm. So there were certain things like that that didn't quite fit the profile of someone who is more to the left. But I got to say, especially when you we got to the questions on how you you know the, the society works best sort of questions, um, you answered those pretty much straight. I think there was one exception Whole out of the anarchy. Ten. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean, well, it's interesting because you're. Uh, seemingly fairly liberal but you're you all you're also so into tradition and ritual and ritual Mm -hmm. as well and that's that's usually something that's very conservative yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. absolutely you know seeking to um preserve traditional ways of uh doing things and respecting those traditional uh ways of doing things at least in our research and in, in a lot of other people's research too seems to fit a more conservative personality than a liberal personality Hmm. Now, Kevin, you don't have to share where you fall on these if you don't want, but you do have to answer one question for me. Would you slap your father for a comedy sketch? No. You wouldn't. I would not. I'm sitting with a couple duds here. I mean, (laughs) I guess you guys just don't like comedy that much. We're not built for it, man. I would be fine with my father slapping (laughs) me for a comedy sketch. Okay. But your father... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but in, in the scenario, which, by the way, I love that that's the question that you open the survey with. You also just like, get to again. look at people's yeah. faces. <laughs> when they- and, you know, and to give credit where credit is due, that question is, is basically lifted from a, a broader set of survey items that a guy called Jonathan Haidt put together. And I don't know if you've heard about Jonathan Haidt. He does the 
um, moral foundations. And his whole idea is that um, people's moral values underpin uh, their political orientations. Please walk Sparky for me. No way. (laughs) I'll throw in a caramel frappe. Ooh, make it a large. Deal. Get a sweet deal. $2 any size McCafe beverage on the McDonald's app. Between you and me, Sparky, I would have walked you for free. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Offer valid through 4322 at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. McDonald's app download and registration required. Yeah, um, man, I am still hung up. I, I, I'm just, just so I don't feel like such a... you got issues with your father, Shane? No, like well, now I feel like such a jerk because I would slap... For, but this is in this scenario. You have his permission, right? Yeah. Like you're on, you're on SNL, you're on stage as part of like the performance and, and, the, <laughs> and your father's like, slap me. Are you trying and to convince go, us, Shane? Yeah, you're not going to bust I'm trying it. to talk you guys into slapping <laughs> your dads for fun. If it makes you feel any better, I'm willing to bet that nine out of 10 people in this building would be willing to slap them. <laughs> Uh, for, a, for a comedy skit. Just that See, Sophia this, and I have to Yeah, be this exception. is a fun building. Yeah. I just happen to be in the dud room. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Uh, um, one of the... Gosh, I have so many questions already, and you, you pipe in I've with me that I've got a whole bunch have, of questions, yeah. But I also... Maybe before we get into um, some more questions, I want, I want you to explain uh, what I thought was kind of the most stand out and you you mentioned already but something that um i had never heard because i i've taken a course on personality research i've talked with a bunch of personality researchers and during the stand-up science show you talked about how how people um the variance in um how political people are whether they're liberal or republican there's there's a difference in um in how much people care about politics in the first place. Oh, yeah, there's, there's a huge difference. I mean, there's some people who um, cannot understand why people aren't paying attention and aren't, you know, as passionate about politics as they are. And there's plenty of people who just don't see what the fuss is about, that it, it's just something that doesn't interest them at all. Actually, that's something as political scientists we have to constantly remind ourselves, especially when we're teaching undergraduates, is that... Not everybody is as fascinated with politics or as interested in politics as we think they should be. So when you're talking about politics, what, what, how do you define politics in your research and, and approach? Well, you know, the definition of politics is, uh, is, is, is something political scientists have struggled with for, for a while. Um, you know, the, the classic definition of politics was by a guy called David Easton, and it's called politics is the process of authoritatively allocating values. And, you know, when I give my undergraduates that definition of politics, I always tell them, now call your mother and father on the weekend and tell them that you've been learning about politics and politics as you know mom and dad is the authoritative allocation of values as you and your know. mom and dad are going to be so impressed and think they, they're getting their money's worth out of the tuition they're paying because look junior's been there a week and i can't understand a damn word they're saying <laughs> um, but basically politics is the process by which we make collective decisions decisions that are binding on everyone whether we like them or not and that is why pros uh, the why politics is the social process that is so conflictual because we instinctively understand what we're arguing about is whose values we all have to live by mm-hmm. and you know there are some values that at least in the abstract we can all agree on so if you're in the united states it's pretty much embedded into our culture that we all value freedom of speech you should be able to say what you want conflict comes in pretty rapidly though in specifics you know um colin kaepernick takes a knee and it's clearly exercising uh, free speech that upsets a lot of people he shouldn't be allowed to do that burn a flag or um, let Nazis march through a small town in, in Illinois, and you get a you, you get a lot of conflict um, over that. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that makes politics endlessly fascinating. Is really what we're arguing about is the values that, as a society, we we live by. 
Do you use a lot of the big five in your um, in your research, or do you think about it that way? Uh, some. I mean, there's just two aspects of the big five that really seem to consistently pop up in predicting political attitudes. For new listeners, why don't we just name it? It's conscientiousness, agreeableness, neuroticism, extroversion, and openness. Yes. And the, the, the two that seem to predict... Um, uh, political attitudes and behaviors are are openness, which tends to be more associated with a left side leaning. you fall yep. on, and yep. conscientiousness, which seems whether to, you care or not. Yeah, and okay. and that seems to predict more sort of like a conser- uh, conservative orientation. So oh. there's 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 plenty of exceptions, but conservatives tend to be more conscientious and respectful of rules. Liberals tend to be more open to new experiences and wanting more novel things. Oh, I, I kind of stepped on what you were saying there, presuming I knew what you were going to say, but I didn't. I, I thought you were, I thought when you were saying, so in my mind, I thought openness was where you, if you're low in openness, you're most likely conservative. If you're high in openness, you're most likely liberal. And then I thought when you're talking about conscientiousness, I thought that was, you're maybe referring to the degree in which how much people care about politics or or what predicts how much people care about politics yeah i don't think that there's a particular personality trait that predicts political interest i'm Mm. trying to think and i I, of course and as soon as you say that you know somebody listening to this podcast is going to say well i read joe blow's seminal study on personality <laughs> traits and, and political Well, I have a lot of Joe Blow fans that are also <laughs> listeners of mine, so they, they probably the are is open. right up on it. Well, and if anybody gets mad at me, you can tell them to go find Kevin Smith, the director gets all the Google me. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so, so that's not affiliated. I, I just kind of assumed that maybe that was conscientiousness related, but... Um, but yeah, I'm... Yeah, I, 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 yeah. Sorry, off the top mm-hmm. of my head, I, I, I don't. We really haven't looked at that particular issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what about how flexible are so? You brought up during your stand-up science um, talk, just to get everyone up to speed who wasn't there. Um, you, you were talking a lot about some of the genetic underpinnings, how much variance there is between environmental influences, and how. I, if I remember right, again, this is a few months ago, yeah, you talked well, about some twin studies yep. stuff. And- yeah, so we have done a number of twin studies. We and, and a lot of other people by now have done a number of twin studies that, um, you know, this is kind of like the basis of the field of behavioral genetics. You can throw some fancy statistics um, at it, but basically how we figure out if something has a genetic influence, if it's if it's heritable or not, is you look at two different types of twins. So there's monozygotic twins and dizygotic twins, identical twins who come from a single fertilized egg that splits. So they essentially share 100% of their structural DNA, their genetic clones of each other. And um, fraternal twins who are, you know, are, are come from two single fertilized eggs and they are related in the same way that any two siblings are related. On average, they share about 50% of the genes. So you've got these two sets of twins, um, uh, MZs and, and, and DCs. They're born at the same time to the same parents in the same family. They grow up in the same environment. They go to the same schools, run in the same social set. They're exposed to exactly the same cultural inferences at more or less the same time. And so if you can look at differences between those Uh, sets of twins, if monozygotic twins are more alike on a given trait, there is a prima facie case that that is being driven by genetics rather than the environment, you know, compared to to DZs. And using various twin studies, and there's been a bunch of these done now, um, they all come to the conclusion when they look at ideology and political attitudes that between 40 and 60% of the observed population level variance in political attitudes and behaviors is under genetic influence. And that has been, hmm. the, the genetic influence has been confirmed not just by twin studies, but by adoption studies. So you look at people who are adopted when they're very, very young, and then look to see whether they are more similarly politically to their um, adoptive family or their biological family. And there's even been at least one study that I, that I know of that looked at identical twins 
raised, that were adopted. So you've got people who are genetically identical raised very, very differently. Um, And all of those tend to um, triangulate on the same conclusion that it's genetics. You tend to be more like your family, um, your biological family, than your um, adoptive family. And there have also been studies at the molecular level now. You know, people whose genomes are more similar are more similar politically. Those are genome-wide association uh, uh, studies. And there's even been a handful of, um, you know, single gene studies. So they're looking at a single gene and correlating that with a political attitude and behavior. I take those studies with a grain of salt because the notion that one gene can affect in anything but a non-trivial manner, a very complex social mm. trait like political attitudes and behavior. I mean, there's just a truckload of genes that make up height, for example, and, and, and we're having a hard time figuring out the genes that actually influence height. And if it's, you know, if, if it's that complex for something like height, which we all know is genetically influenced, you can imagine how hard it is to isolate single genes that you know, influence whether you're a liberal or a conservative. Jeez, that could have some pretty dismal political implications if we do pinpoint exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, actually, the you know one of the interesting things about this is when I started this, when I started doing what I do for a living now as a, as a research academic, I basically made a conscious decision. It's like, okay, I am going to spend the rest of my career devoted to demonstrating that there is a genetic influence on political attitudes and behaviors. And it's I, like you were born to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps, I, you know, there is a genetic influence there. And, well, well here's the story of how I ended up there, is by trade, I'm a policy analyst. That's what my PhD uh, dissertation was on, and that's how I spent... The first formative years as a young assistant professor was um, studying public policy, and I had this very naive naive idea that I would do these studies and I would help policymakers make better decisions. And this was in the 1990s, and the big thing that was driving public policy at the time was public choice, essentially rational choice, economic models. And what I was studying was education policy. So I was really studying a lot of school choice, you know, school vouchers kind of things. And my research kept coming to the conclusion, this ain't going to work. This is not going to work. People are not rational. They are not making decisions and choices in the way that the first principle assumptions of these models are assuming them. They're making decisions emotionally. They're making decisions on the basis of, I like that football team. Um, they're making decisions on, I like this racial mix. They're, making, they're not making decisions on sort of like the, or not to the extent that you would, that the models predicted on the academic quality of the schools. And so I kept getting up at conferences saying, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. People don't, real humans don't act like this. And the big piece of feedback I kept getting on that early work that I did was, okay, smartass, so what's your explanation of why humans do what they do if they're not rational? And my response to that was, I have no clue. And so what I ended up doing is I started reading more and more and more um, I started initially in the economic literature, but I ended up in the psychological literature. And quickly from there, I went back to Darwin and then worked forward. And, you know, that, that, so that, that's kind of a long story and a winding road, but that's how I ended up sort of like interested in what I'm interested in. Because evolutionarily, some of these things, uh, you know, logic just works very differently on that time scale from a genetic perspective than it does on, say, uh, an individual's everyday decisions in, in a way like we were um uh, sophia and i met giving talks together in this festival called azora and and outside of Budapest, it's like a burning man type thing and there's a bunch of uh you know very liberal people like talking about you know this is uh, like global warming issues and all these things like why can't people just see this it's just logical that we need to make these changes but but people just don't think i made the joke there that i was like look if 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 people thought logically 
all of us would, uh, everyone at this festival would be wearing sunscreen, earplugs, and condoms, and no one in this festival is doing that because we kind of, that that was never a part of our evolutionary history. And actually, I think you touched on something there that I think is at the heart of, um, you know, the conflict that we see in politics. Most people who think seriously about politics and have committed political viewpoints seem to genuinely believe if people would just sit down and think about this rationally and they would come to the same conclusion that that I would and have the same political viewpoints that that I would I can I'm very I'm you know 100% confident of very few things in my research I'm 100% confident that is incorrect mm-hmm. there's very very few people that actually operate like that politics is to a large extent based in emotion. And and humans are essentially feeling machines that think. We're not thinking machines that feel. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, connecting with someone, this is one of the questions that really fascinates us now is how do you get people who have really, really, really different political viewpoints to meaningfully engage with each other if they're not doing it on a you know, everybody says, well, we, we need to sit down and have a reasoned and rational debate. Well, people do that all the time, and it usually ends up in a yelling match. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you get people to, to, to connect? And, you know, uh, that's probably what I'm going to spend the rest of yeah, my career dancing. doing. Dancing. trying to figure <laughs> out. Yeah. So, so I have a question here. Um, I, I don't know if this, this, we're still in the arena of your research, but it sounds like what, what we're hearing here is we're not rational beings and we can't always be reasoned with and our decisions don't come from that place but um they almost live in the body or there's it it seems to be pointing to some sort of a cellular or a genetic memory um do do you work in all in that area and 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 i mean i guess what i'm saying here is like you know in 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 my work with in, in with traditional communities and in the amazon we have a lot we talk about ancestral trauma um and maybe like in in our in our bodies we remember times of scarcity and famine and perhaps that could inform our you know conservative values it does that translate at all into your research or or framework actually in a way it does actually that's not too far at all from where we're you know the foundation that we're operating from you know the the position that we're coming from is i was shocked at how quickly it was demonstrated that political attitudes and behaviors are genetically influenced. You know, I thought I'd be spending 30 years, you know, making the case for that. That actually fell pretty quickly. I mean, we're talking within three years, there'd been numerous studies that popped up from numerous sets of researchers that sort of like confirmed this. So the big question is, is like, well, how the heck does that work, right? How how do genes actually manage to influence political attitudes and behaviors? And what we you know, kind of like the model that we're working with that actually kind of maps onto what you said, Sophia, is that, you know, you don't have a conservative gene or a liberal gene. You certainly have a a suite of genes that build your brain, that build your endocrine system, that build your um, uh, autonomic nervous system. In other words, the biological information processing systems that connect you to your environment. And because those are genetically built, we all have variations. You know, your brain, your endocrine system, your autonomic nervous system is a little different from mine. Those systems, it's fairly non-controversial to say that the, the people are innately, you know, predisposed, hardwired, if you like, um, by those systems to react differently to what's going on in their environment. And, you know, just to get this off of too much of a theoretical plane, we all know people who are jumpy, Right. And we all know people who are chill. Yes. You expose them to the exact same stimulus and they react very, very differently. Well, when those systems, when they physiologically react, they have a different cognitive and emotional response to what's going on in their environment. And it turns out that some of that maps onto political attitudes and behaviors. And what we think is going on is that, you know, you know, one of the arguments that is out there, we haven't done a ton of this work, but, but you know, certainly some of the colleagues we've worked with have, is that um, take an issue like immigration. You know, there's an argument out there that there is um, an immune response, a disgust response that's 
that, that, that's happening, that is innately happening. You know, it's not something that you consciously process. It's just a gut feeling. I don't like that. This politician disgusts me. Yeah. And then, and then what your um, conscious brain does is it justifies that um, uh, 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 gut reaction. So that's sort of like not a, a cellular level memory, but mm-hmm. what we've got is a, is a predisposition. You know, these biological systems are taking in all this information. They're triggering a response mm-hmm. that is primarily grounded in the in emotion at the back of our brain. And then when it does drift into consciousness, we're effectively justifying that. Mm. You know, we 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 got these big brains, and we think that we're so rational, and we that we think things through. We don't. Wow. Consciousness is usually a very fanciful explanation that we tell ourselves after the fact of some kind of hidden underlying mechanisms we're trying to make sense of. Yeah, and and when it comes to politics, I mean, so many people are convinced that you know, my political viewpoint is just common sense, right? I mean, everybody knows that. People know so little about politics. I mean, it is shocking. Um, most years, I teach a huge section of Introduction to American Politics. And it never fails. The first day of class, I always give them a big quiz. And I never tell them, but that quiz is the citizenship test. Wow. And it never fails. They flunk it. All of them. Mm, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Actually, the people who tend to do better on the citizenship test are Europeans, especially Eastern Europeans. <laughs> Somehow that doesn't surprise me yeah. at all. So, I mean, these aren't, you know, big, deep questions. You know, what was Madison talking about in Federalist 10? I mean, this is, you know, what are the three branches of government sort of, uh, right. sort of questions. Hmm. Um, Please don't so, ask me those questions. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so, uh, we've talked before on the, on the show about kind of... Um, like for example, the Dutch hunger winter. Are you mm-hmm. familiar? So, yep. So during there, World War Two. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, women in the third trimester that starved during this time. Those kids ended up becoming um, having exceptionally high rates of diabetes. Basically, they the they learned in utero that that it's scarce out there. So when you do eat, eat as much as you can and pack it away as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps and then and then those kids but then then if you have diabetes then your next kid tends to be more likely to have diabetes because you're withholding resources from your child and then the child is in a scarce environment in there and so so there can be these generational effects and perhaps there's something like that with our political attitudes going on as well potentially yeah my my other also if you could answer this what what then are we even considering genetic and environmental because that was the environment of of the prenatal environment that created that influence right and it was an epigenetic effect sure so you- and i mean all these biological information processing systems that i was talking about including your brain i mean they are um modifiable by environmental experience right and i think you bring up a really good point and that you know this is it nature or nurture that's a silly argument that's absolutely a silly argument it, it's it's both it is absolutely both you know the you have to have an environmental stimulus for this biological system to react to and um you know to say that especially something as complex as a political behavior or attitude saying that it's one or the other at least to somebody like me that just seems like a silly a silly argument um, there's very few people who can shut them off, shut themselves off in a logic box. I guess there are a few Dr. Spocks out there. Um, but for but for most of us, you know, we hear, you know, the president say something on TV or we read an article or a friend of ours says something or our dad or our uncle says something over the Thanksgiving table. And, you know, it, it makes us mad or um, we agree with it and it makes us happy. And that's kind of what's driving, um, uh, you know, our, our, our political orientations. Hmm. I, I wonder, has it always been the case? Because it kind of, I'm curious from Sophia's anthropologic experience, when you go down there, how, it, how divided are people politically there because I would get the sense that part of the reason why our political beliefs are can be so extreme is that 
in our modern world where we can kind of isolate ourselves a bit more. Like I spend a lot of time in the car imagining, um, uh, you know, I'm by myself and I'm imagining, you know, some, the uncle of mine or whatever that said something. And I'm imagining a conversation with, with my uncle about this and I'm just crushing it in this conversation. You know, I, I've created this nice straw man. Every point I make is just really making them look like a fool, you know? And, and, and then, and then, and then there's like this feedback of like, yeah, you know, I guess I am right there. It's because I'm not actually talking to him. And if I was sitting there talking with him, maybe we would be coming to some middle ground mm-hmm. a little more. And as we're isolating ourselves more, we're, we're taking on more of these individual um, perspectives. I wonder if that is creating an environmental influence that's creating a little more um, of these echo chambers or whatever so mm-hmm. many people are talking about these well, days. Well, that certainly fits with um, a lot of work that people have done on the effects of social media to mm-hmm. where you can... You know, even when you present yourself in online and on on social media, it's not really you. You can present a very curated picture of you, and and not only that, you can sort of like, I mean, this isn't an inner monologue, but you can deliberately choose what information that you expose yourself to, mm-hmm. and it can set up, you know, kind of like the self reinforcing positive feedback loop. I'm right. You know, Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow says I'm right, so I'm right. So I go find somebody else on Facebook who says I'm right, and I'm I'm right, and and that kind of thing keeps going. And it could turn out you could be completely wrong. Um, you know, if you actually had, as you put it, a real human being in front of you. I think what's different from us, and actually, I'd be interested in Sophia the anthropological take on this, is what's particularly challenging to you know, big liberal democracies is we we are big. And in, you know, smaller, more tribal communities, I mean, most things I would presume, I mean, you're much more of an expert than I am, can be done in sort of like a face-to-face, uh, you know, hashing things out. There's less of a need for, you know, these institutions that can process um, um, uh, a lot of conflict. I mean, we live in a society where, you know, um, a, a farmer in Kansas can be just really upset that two guys in California might be getting married, and that somehow undermines, you know, that that farmer's notion of the way society should be structured and propels him out into the the the, the political world. I mean, there's really not equivalent an equivalent to that. No, no. Uh, I mean, and spe- yeah, and I mean, especially this is this is more of a media studies perspective. You know, it was only when we started publishing a national newspaper that suddenly we all became we all opened the same newspaper every morning and read the same thing with our cups of coffee, and suddenly we're all under this umbrella, and we had the feeling like, hey, well, this person is my neighbor. When re- in reality, they live you know a thousand miles away from you. So this sense of responsibility uh, changed a little bit. But I mean, in my case. When you know, the communities that I work with in the Amazon, I mostly focus on an environment, actually. So how people manage um, in their environment and their environmental resources. So that's kind of the fabric that keeps communities together. You know, you have one lake, you have one uh, little herd of animals, and you have one little ecosystem that you're caring for. And that's the that's that's really the fabric of the, of the community. And now, you know, if you're going to ask a community in the Amazon, hey, what are these guys doing in the Andes? It's like asking what somebody on Mars is going to do, you know, because there isn't that there isn't that relationship necessarily. I mean, obviously, there is a sense of interconnectedness and understanding that communities are woven together. But um, but it is very much about having a sense of place with the earth that you're on um, and, you know, and, and, and the laws and really the, the politics emerge from you know who's who has allow who has access who has the permission to access this resource who has the permission to take this harvest who has the permission or the training or the cultural cachet to go and do this big fancy hunting expedition and and that's really you know what it's rooted in so it's it's things that people engage with on a daily basis um, whereas I think. Now, when I talk, when I think about politics, so many of these concepts are actually quite abstract, and they don't apply to me to, a, to on a daily basis. You know. Yeah. So I mean, you know, to carry the 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 um, you know the scenario that you were talking about and and transfer it in a metaphorical sense to what we're dealing with in the U.S. Those people in the Andes, 
if it's if it's those jerks who get the Supreme Court justices appointed, we're all going to be living under their social values. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those people far away who really don't have anything to do with me and the day-to-day of my life suddenly take on this huge importance when you're living in kind of like these big um, um, mass democracies. And I mean, that's part of what makes politics so fascinating to study and also just so hard to figure out. My God, humans are complicated critters. I mean, they are really hard to. <laughs> what are we doing over here? <laughs> that, mm. Well, I for one have no idea what I'm doing. I'll, let me just say that. But Sophia, the the people that I I am still curious, the people that um, you spend a lot of time living with, do you do they? Would you say that they're as political, less political than, and also? Are there kind of extremes in the same way that maybe I'm over perceiving extremes Mm -hmm. and I think Mm -hmm. most people are somewhat moderate, but we we do have like a this side's death penalty, this side's no death penalty, Mm -hmm. this and and it it seems pretty or is it more nuanced? Yeah, I would say more broadly, there's less uh, there's less of a dualistic perspective in general. So there's a bit I think more like a yin yang approach. There's there's less of this kind of there is good and there's evil, there's light and there's darkness. But it's understood that these aspects are all working together. Like if you walk in the forest, what we look at is actually all green. When in reality, if you shift your perspective, there's death all around. There are dead leaves, dead sticks, dead animals. There's it, there's death all around, just as much as there is life. So the what are the size of the social communities that you're the the sites the size oh the like, size yeah. well I mean it, so it, it depends right like they, some of them can be linguistically and culturally tied together and that's like thirty five thousand people or approximately the 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 Shipibo people who I work with today um, but then you know in one hamlet you could have ten people or you could have a hundred people or, or three thousand people so it really really varies and depends um, some of the work that I was doing earlier was about actually helping facilitate communities communication between communities in the Amazon um, when it comes specifically to uh, deciding um, to helping communities make decision about oil drilling in the area because you have uh, you have you know oil, petroleum extractors who come and they come and try to seduce communities by bringing them candy and toys and they'll say hey you know we're gonna ch- just drill over here and you're not going to notice anything you're gonna make money in about five ten years it's gonna be really nice but that decision, you know, maybe they're, they are the most populous community. Meanwhile, an hour down the river, there's a community which is 50 people less, and they have no decision making, and, you know, they have no ability to, to make a decision in that. Um, so, and it's very hard for, you know, so they are speaking the same language, they're the same community, but it's really about transportation and going up and down river, and there isn't that much communication. I see so, the sort of politics that... You know, that I, that I study, I, I think how, how this sort of thing would scale up is if you've got groups of, say, up to 150, that, I mean, you know everybody, you can keep all of that in your head, you mm-hmm. can actually have social relationships with 150. What's the name for that? that isn't that some sort of a, uh, never mind. The, the probably is a name for it. There, yeah, there, there's, uh, ah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. The, the, it's like the number of people that you can know really right. well. Right. And Yeah, it, and, and there's less. I think ne- it's the Dunbar number, maybe. Well, I let's go with that, the okay. Dunbar number. Sure. But the the bottom line is is the you know if you have numbers like that you really don't need institutions yeah. or mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. legalistic processes to make uh, uh, collective decisions. But you start to ramp it up much past that, especially where you've got um, uh, geographic separation. You know now you can start thinking about my in group versus an out group. Um, and that can be overcome if there's a language or a religion shared or a, a race and an ethnicity, but you get differences there, and then you get more of an in-group and an out-group separation. And now you're really stork- talking about ma- you know, politics on a mass scale where to resolve conflict, especially if you're going to avoid you know, if you're going to count heads rather than crack them, now now you need institutions. Now you need real politics. You need some way of collectively making decisions that is going to, you know, where we all agree we're all going to live by the, we're going to make these decisions and we're going to live by these values. And that's where I think it gets really, really complicated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I've, I've been studying politics for over 30 years now and all it's taught me is I, I just don't know that much about why 
people have the political attitudes you, and behaviors they do. Do you think, I mean, in, in like in a, in, a, in a perfect world or something, do you think that there's some PSA that you could beam out there and say, look, you're all animals and you're not rational? And I mean, do you think that there are some like practical applications or ways that um, people could actually be informed or somehow, you know, ch- be more self-aware of their decision making? Yeah, I mean, like the three of us are all perfectly logical, rational people. Right. So how do we us get in this room yeah, here? These, uh, uh, how do, how do we get these feelers out there to get over <laughs> to our just side? Get these people down that have a rational with us. I mean, I, I, th- that's a great question, and I don't know the answer to it. I mean, this is kind of the direction we're pushing some of our research right now. I mean, there are some hints, right, um, of how this might be accomplished, because attitudes can change. I mean, even if they're biologically influenced, it doesn't mean that they're deterministic or locked in forever and ever. A good example of this is sort of like attitudes on gay marriage, which have radically changed over the last 40 or 50 years. And one of the things that we have talked about is one of the things that's changed along with the attitudes towards gay rights is an increasing recognition that sexual orientation is at least partially biologically influenced. It's not just a lifestyle choice. It's, there's, you know, this is an innate part of, 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 of people's makeup. And that seems to have at least correlated with increasing tolerance. So, I mean, this is hugely self-interested for me to say, right? But if that sort of message can actually have that kind of an effect, then then maybe, I mean, I'm not sure if, you know, you should go out and read the work by Kevin Smith because we're all biologically influenced on our product. I mean, I'm not sure it would quite work like that. But even if we could make incremental advances in getting people to accept, you know, it's not just, you're not a, 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 a you know, a stubborn mule because you disagree with me. You genuinely see the world different differently. Hmm. Other, that's at least going to make me a little bit more tolerant of the differences that we have. And if nothing else, I think that's a step in the right right direction. It sure beats trying to cancel somebody on Twitter or whatever the kids are doing these days. <laughs> <Canceled. laughs> They're just out there canceling. Uh, hey, you cancel anyone recently? Uh, yeah, cancel uh, you guys. <laughs> uh, and then high fives are now offensive and we cancel all the people that were high-fiving over canceling. Um <laughs> Uh, Sophia, when when someone say you grow up in a, a in a little township of fifteen people, when, when they when, when they when they go uh, when they go to like a little town that has like three thousand, is that like going to Manhattan or something like that, like that for them? Is it, that that's my I silly mean, joke? But I have a I have a serious question. Really, it better be it. serious. It better be serious. So. I have what, from my American perspective, is a small-ish, sort of quaint-ish upbringing um, in in Wisconsin, and then and I've been to lots of big cities, and I always kind of considered myself a big city boy at heart or whatever. But but there's there's a wholesomeness, and it seems like when you're when you're in a smaller city, there's like oh everyone gets along or whatever, and it's and it's uh, you know not not the same um, kind of division that you might see uh, you know displayed on the news or whatever. But at the same time, I remember feeling like a lot of people, or certainly I was, very repressed in that in a smaller town, there's just a lot of social costs in saying the wrong thing, and mm. not put it, whereas in a bigger city. There's not those same costs there, and it's almost like people can take more chances. People can be a little more extreme, might even have to to draw attention to themselves. Is is there? Would you say that there's an environmental influence just in in that kind of living condition? Yeah, it, and it, it may go both ways. There may also be some self selection going on there. I mean, we know that um, liberals tend to congregate in large urban areas, at least more so than conservatives, and conservatives tend to live more in rural areas and they they seem to like it that way i mean what you sort of like see is social repression i mean you know some people have a very very positive they like the the, the conformity the, the 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 reliability the right. traditionalism i mean there's a, a a social comfort to that for for some people but for other people it's like holy crap this is the same thing 
every day. Yeah, it was like everybody a knows what I'm doing. If I do something that's outside the navigational beacons, everybody's going to know about it, and I'm going to be judged for it. You know, I'm getting out of here, and I'm going to New York City, where I can do what I want, and stay up late, and smoke what I want, and sleep who I, with 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 who I want, and 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 not have to not have to worry about it. Hmm. And, I'm hoping and, you know, to work navigational beacon beacon hmm. into my vocabulary and i i really I, I do enjoy that very much that's a fun little phrase and i stole that from jimmy buffett <laughs> <laughs> keep it between the navigational beak <laughs> I, I have a question on, on that survey that we took there was a question big city or how did it go uh do you prefer big cities do you consider if you were to pick one small town or big, big city? city yeah so I'm born and raised in New York City. Mm-hmm. I lived like the fast life growing up. I did all the things. And I now like live in, in the Amazon, you know, like I'm pretty. <laughs> That's I not a the, big city and I and, and on that, in, in, well, yeah, it depends who you count as the inhabitants, really. But <laughs> it's pretty crowded. Um, but on, on that survey I took, I, I wrote small town because I just feel, I don't know how to say it, like in my heart. I just like the feeling of a small town. Is that... Could, I mean, could that indicate something about like a genetic disposition or a- uh, maybe? I mean, I'm not sure how it relates to politics. But when you say that you feel comfortable to a small town, I mean, would you feel comfortable in a small town in Nebraska or Texas? To be determined. I sure. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe so. there is. I like feeling f- like familiarity and yeah. and comfort and a sense of continuity in and my that relationships. Is- She's- She's been uh, she's been in the Midwest for a day, and she just she's walking about town, going howdy, howdy. I tried to tell her that that's not what everyone does. <laughs> that would be Texas, not, not not the Midwest. But yeah, and, and I mean, I think a lot of people have exactly those same feelings. Is is sort of like in smaller communities, there actually can be a much more palpable, environmentally reinforced sense of community. And a lot of people find that comforting. They they, they like that. Um, and that, it tends to be more associated with conservatives than with them, with, with, with liberals. I mean, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the work of um, uh, David Goodhart. Um, he, I'm he was terrible the, with names. The Anywheres and Somewheres. Mm, don't no. know it. No, and his argument, he, he's like looked at populism and why are we having this big populist um, movement in, in Western liberal democracies these days. And one of his answers is is that we, we've sort of like cleaved into these two tribes. And there's the somewheres, the people who, you know, grow up in small communities, want to stay in small communities, want to keep that community the way it is, preserve the way it, way it is. And there's the anywheres, you know, the people who get PhDs and can, you know, form a, a friend group and a social group and can function anywhere. You know, they can move around the globe and, you know, that's, that, that's, that's, that's their, their environment. And, you know, at, at least according to Goodhart, you know, the somewheres have kind of had enough of the anywheres running everything. And partly where populism is come, coming from is the somewheres are kicking back. So, you know, what you're talking about is, you know, I feel comfortable here and I have an attraction to that. You know, one of the things that, at least if you believe this argument, that's driving political conflict is the somewheres are like, we're having our somewhere taken away from us. Mm. You know, uh, and this is, I'm opposed to immigration. You know, the churches are all closing. The factories are all closing. I don't like this. And uh, I'm going to take it out on the people in charge who think, you know, these globalist know-it-alls and, mm-hmm. um, and, and we've had enough of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm an anywhere. For sure. Makes yeah, sense. I, I, I get that it. Doesn't yeah. surprise me in the in the in the least. And I mean, he's in know, anything. <laughs> one of the things is is I think there's a duality to human nature, and you got to be careful about saying either or, mm-hmm. because actually most people are mixes and and and, and matches. There's there's few people on the extreme end of uh, e- either end of the the the. the the, the spectrum. But, you know, you, I think you can make good evolutionary arguments that groups that had both types of people in them probably had survival and fitness advantages that groups just made up of one. I mean, if you had a group that was like, we're never going over the hill, well, you know, it could be dangerous over there. 
We're, we're never going over the hill. You know, there's another tribe over there, that, and, and, and those, are, those are dangerous folks. We're never going to interact with them. I mean, that's probably going to be safe, but they're probably not going to expand, advance, you know, develop new technologies. Mm-hmm. And the, the um, diversity that evolution yeah. stumbled on led to specialization as well. Yeah. So not, not only... Uh, not only was is there now like an opportunity to like go over the hill uh, or be a creek person or whatever, but but people are uh, there's a subset of people that are great at that. That's the hill guy. Yeah, and the <laughs> the, the flip side is, him. is if you've got a group made up of hey, let's all go over the hill. Yeah. You know those these guys are different from us. This is great. Let you know that group is probably going to get taken advantage of pretty quickly it's probably not going to be you know um uh it's probably not going to be as stable as a uh a, a group made up of, of of somewheres but i think if you've got a mix of both i mean i think there's good reasons for why groups would evolve to have that kind of like you know difference in in, in personalities um uh you know Especially if you believe in sort of like group selection arguments, which people increasingly do these days. Really? That's coming back? Yeah, that's coming back. Group selection arguments? Mm-hmm. Uh, from a selfish gene perspective, the, the, idea, of, the, the idea of like, um, say, an argument of like, well, the reason, the logical reason why evolution would like allow people to have the thought to kill themselves is like maybe the group gets to. So that was, that was okay. uh, as far as I knew, pretty pretty much like dismissed some 50 years ago or so and now that's yeah so i mean in in, in, i don't want to overstate the case it's still controversial but you know the the standard argument is that the unit of selection is the individual because that's what evolution can see but there are arguments that uh evolution can also see groups david sloan wilson is is the um you know he wrote a book about 15 or 20 years ago called do unto others that kind of revamped the group selection argument Hmm. Well, I got to get you out of here soon. And, and the listeners, I hope that um, uh, you get a chance to check out uh, Head Talks. We're actually talk Sophia into adding some February dates. Woo-hoo. So go to the website and check out February. We're going from like Savannah through uh, to like around Oklahoma City, making kind of a straight line. Um, and so, uh, but anyway, we have, we have, if you're hearing this on time, we have Wichita. Uh, Oklahoma City and Dallas and Austin on this first initial uh, run. So I hope even if there's a couple hills between you and there, you'll come <laughs> say howdy. Um, I would, I would be, I would be, uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't. Um, uh, you you got to see the Head Talks show uh, yesterday, talking a little bit about psychedelics. One one um, scientific finding-ish. I guess it's kind of controversial, hasn't necessarily been um, uh, completely verified, and uh, but is that uh, that the use of psychedelics can increase openness mm-hmm. in people. Have you have you heard that? I, I haven't heard that. I guess, I guess that doesn't surprise me. I, I had heard a little bit, I, I haven't read any studies, but I had heard a little bit in talking to some of my psychology friends about the use of uh, psychedelics to treat things like PTSD. And I find that sort of stuff absolutely fascinating. I mean, effectively, you're altering brain chemistry. And um, uh, I don't want to say altering personality, I mean, because that's kind of, um, you know, like a, 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 a clinical treatment, but you're certainly altering attitudes and behaviors. Speaking of altering personality, what, <laughs> as you're, as you're looking at the, the, some of these genetic drivers and you know epigenetics is all the rage these days everyone's talking about this epigenetic stuff and and maybe we can use it to increase health or whatever is there uh, some time in the future um you know 50 years from now or something if they if they tinker enough you think they'll be able to like get in there and, and make epigenetic differences to people's political attitudes aye, aye, aye. <laughs> well you never say never i would say that we're a long way away from the, yeah. <laughs> that, that right now there's there's a lot of little steps that we got to take before we get to that well it's just for i'm just speaking in terms of us three rational people obviously bringing, <laughs> oh, getting everyone else over to our, our uh, genetic shame <laughs> where, where it's everybody 
else. Right? Yeah. Right, right. We'll decide. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you, Kevin, so much for joining no, thanks me. Thanks for having me on, Shane. And thank you, Sophia, for being a thank wonderful you. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, see you, Sophia. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. All right. So, don't want to forget, every week I have my guest plug a nonprofit of their choice. Did you have one in mind? Yeah, I would like to uh, plug the Center for People in Need right here in Lincoln, Nebraska. This is an organization that does really, really good work in helping out people in our community who are less fortunate. That is fantastic. And oh my God, I, I mean, Sophia's right here. Why don't you? I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> what? Um, I mean, I, I'm in the nonprofit world, support them all. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, specifically, you know, working with communities uh, in the Amazon, discovering uh, and developing um, alternatives to slash and burn agriculture, um, calling out the Chaikuni Institute, chaikuni.org. Um, amazing way to support the, the brilliance of, of our beautiful forest over there. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you.